as in any relationship, whether or not illness is a piece of it, I think it's it's similar, just in that we we always need to be on the lookout for ways to show love in a way that the other person re- can receive it. Because I think our tendency, I mean, my tendency is to show love in the way that I receive love, but that's not going to do another person any good, maybe. Um, and I think illness, you know, makes it a little trickier maybe, but ultimately I don't know that it's all that different than any relationship. You're listening to Out of Line with Caroline Lee, exploring offline realities with online personalities. Danae Horst is an LA-based photographer, prop stylist, and founder of Folia Collective, which is a plant store in Pasadena and an online plant tutorial space. In her not-so-distant past, Danae served as the editorial director for Justina Blakeney's design blog, The Jungalo, and she still writes the plant care column, Plantopedia, on a regular basis. Danae and her husband, Bill, live in Pasadena, so Danae came over to my place for our chat on chronic illness and fibromyalgia. Um, all right, so you are like plant goddess, everything, everything alive and green. And you know, all of the, what is it? Latin, Latin Uh, words. Okay, great. Yep. I'm like, I'm always like, wow, that's a long word for a plant that I call a mother-in-law tongue. (laughs) So I, I know that about you, but I also know that recently you've started talking a little bit. You've posted a few things talking about fibromyalgia. And I would love to hear just sort of a little bit more about that. I think that isn't a thing that gets talked about very often. And um, both fibromyalgia specifically and also just like, is it, is it considered a chronic illness? It is. What it's is it? It's a chronic disorder. They call it a disorder. Um, I don't, I suspect that'll shift at some point because there's sort of like, the medical definition of like a disorder versus a disease um, is different. And disorder is sort of when there's sort of roots in unknown spaces or for a long time fibromyalgia, they thought it was like psychosomatic and that it was actually just like a psychological issue. Interesting. And so I think, I think that's a little bit why it's still classified as a disorder is because I think there's still a bit of like a, stigma perhaps Mm. in some of the medical community about like there's some doctors that like don't even think it's still don't think it's real wow so wow yeah so when did you realize you had it um about 11 years ago um well no that's not true about 11 12 years ago i started having just weird symptoms um that initially manifested as I would wake up in the morning or at night and felt the same kind of pain that I remember having as a kid when I was having growing pains. I don't know if you ever Mm, had those mm -hmm. kinds of pains where just like your legs would just ache for like no good reason. Mm -hmm. And the best way I could like explain it was that I felt like my bones hurt, but it just, that didn't make any sense. And so I didn't really know what was going on. It was a little bit of like a stressful period in my life. I was like working multiple jobs and, So I kind of just thought like, oh, I'm sure it'll go away. Um, And I grew up in, I grew up without health insurance, really. Mm. So I had never really been in like the mindset of like going to the doctor as soon as something felt weird. Uh, You would go to the doctor like if, 
you know, something was broken or <laughs> or you were like really sick and knew you needed antibiotics. That was like about it. I maybe went to the doctor, I don't know, 20 times in my whole life, mm. um, you know, up until my like mid 20s. And so I st- I didn't go to the doctor. I just thought, eh, it's I'm sure it'll like work itself out. Maybe I'm just too tired. Maybe I've been like overdoing it whatever. Um, but it was like starting to really affect me and it got sort of gradually got worse. And I noticed my energy levels really dipping. And that was very strange for me. I just was not used to having low energy. I've been like super high energy, like, you know, kind of go getter my Mm. whole life. Mm. And so I really didn't understand what was going on. Um, and shortly somewhere around that time is actually when I got engaged to my now husband and, he kind of was like, you know, maybe you should get that checked out. But then we we like we got engaged and like married shortly after. So we didn't have a lot of time and we started planning the wedding. And I was just like, I'm too busy for all of this. I went and got like a couple of, you know, doctor appointments squared away and had told my general practitioner that, you know, I thought there was maybe something going on. And because we were in the middle of wedding planning, everybody just kept saying, oh, it's probably just stress. Mm -hmm. So wait until this season's over and I'm sure you'll, you'll feel better. And I just didn't, it just kept getting worse and I kept getting more tired and just weird things were hurting. Like people would shake my hand and my hand would hurt so much that it felt like someone was like trying to break it or people would give me a hug and I could feel like where their arms had been like on my arms or on my back for like an hour afterwards. Um, I just thought like, this is something is very wrong. Um, so I, I went and had a couple of like doctor appointments with my general practitioner. He like ran up, did a bunch of blood work and tried to rule out all kinds of really scary stuff. Like, cause the stuff they rule out first, usually before they like start looking at fibromyalgia, fibromyalgia is lupus and MS and stuff that's like much scarier, <laughs> frankly. Mm. Um, and so there was just this season of like that list being looming of, over my head of, what could this be? Uh, and just blood tests kept rolling things out for a while. They were looking at like, they thought there was a problem with my pancreas. And I was super freaked out because my, my mom's father died of pancreatic cancer. And of course, I mean, everybody knows this, like pancreatic cancer is like one of the worst cancers. And I was like, Oh my God, like what if I have pancreatic cancer? I was like so scared. Um, and you're like newly married at this point. Newly married, brand new married. Um, having all these issues. Um, Felt so bad for my my poor husband, who was just like probably did not know what he was getting into with some of this stuff. Um, and yeah, just they just couldn't figure it out. Kept doing tests, had like all these like, you know, CT scans and all of the MRIs and all of these things trying to figure out like what's going on with me. Started seeing specialists. They always send you to like a rheumatologist if you're having these kinds of issues. Um, and my rheumatologist was like, well, you know, we don't really know. It could be this. It could be that. We're still ruling things out. Try, you know, she was like, try exercising. Like most people feel better once they start exercising. And I think some of that probably stems from the fact that I've always been like overweight. It's like I really, since I was a kid, have always just been like chubby. Um, And so I think sometimes people look at me and assume like, Oh, you're probably just not getting enough activity in your life. But really, I was like working super active jobs and doing like walking everywhere. And I've always been a pretty active person. Um, 
And so I, that didn't sound right to me because exercise would make me feel so tired that I like felt like I couldn't move for three days afterwards. Oh, wow. So, but I was like, okay, I'll try it. We joined a gym and we started like going to the gym and I had like, I met, met with like a trainer for a couple of sessions to kind of make sure I was doing the right sorts of things. And just every time I would go to the gym, I just would be so wiped out for days. I was like, this can't possibly be like the right treatment. It mm. just felt so crazy. Um, I also started kind of seeing a naturopathic MD at the time thinking like, oh, maybe it's, you know, something I'm eating and living in Seattle, especially like naturopathic medicine is huge there. And everyone I knew was on some kind of special diet, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. to like fix whatever thing was wrong with them. So I thought, yeah, maybe this will be it. And they put me on this like super crazy elimination diet. And it was such a struggle just being on that diet. I mean, just the amount of things that they ruled out, like that they were trying to rule out all at once. I was just like, I don't know how to do this. It was everything from, I mean, sugar, which I'm definitely a sugar addict. I always have been. (laughs) (laughs) So that alone was hard. No caffeine, no sugar, no dairy, no, like practically no meat, um, hardly any grains, like no gluten, just all the things they ruled out. Like, I think there was a thing where I, the only way I could have chicken is if it was poached. What? Just like, who wants I have to never eat, even heard of poached chicken. Boiled chicken, yeah. basically. Yeah. Sounds fabulous. <laughs> and I could have like uh, only a ha- an actual handful of fruit a day. That was like my maximum like sort of sugar intake. So it was, it was a struggle. Yeah. And I had already been kind of feeling sort of like depression and I, not like in a, I don't think I was clinically depressed, but just having that sort of depressive feeling of just like being sick and not knowing what was wrong with me and food being something that did provide some comfort and then not being able to have any of those things Mm. was just like made me feel so much worse. And I got to the point where I was like, if this is what's going to solve it, I think I'd rather be in pain. Like this is miserable. I was so miserable. Mm. And Bill, my husband was just like trying to stick in it with me, but just could see like how I was so cranky. (laughs) How long was this going on? I mean, it took them, I want to say, about a year and a half to fully diagnose me. And I wow. did this elimination diet for not that long at all. I like just couldn't make it. It yeah. just like wasn't working. My rheumatologist eventually diagnosed me uh, with fibromyalgia. And they do this, the test that they do to kind of finally be like, yes, okay, this is what we think you have is so like simple and bizarre. They basically poke you in I think like 60 or 70 different places on your body. And every time they poke you, they, they have you say whether you feel pain or pressure. And most of them are places where you should only feel pressure, like if you're healthy. Okay. And so depending upon what percentage of those pokes register as pain instead of pressure, that helps them know like, yes, this is fibromyalgia. Wow. <laughs> Which, and I, it's possible that has changed since this was, you know, this was like 11 years ago. Um, but I just kept thinking like, really this is like the this after all this blood work and all of these like very high-tech medical tests that was the one wow they were like yeah okay you have fibromyalgia like poke like with a needle no, or like just, just literally with their, with their finger. finger oh my god <laughs> so they're literally just like tickle tickle poke, okay poke. Well, yeah that yeah the whole process takes like 20 minutes and wow. just the doctor poking <laughs> yeah and you're like this like, is finally the thing that's gonna get really? me an answer oh yeah. wow <laughs> Wow. And did they tell you right away? Like, were they? Uh, I think 
I think it was like she did that. They ran a few more tests. I, I felt like I was having my blood drawn on like the daily back then. Not really. But that's what it felt like. Like just every I was constantly covered in bruises every time they draw my blood. I'd have these crazy bruises on my arm. Um, and I think maybe like the next time I saw her, which was probably a week later, she was like, OK, so we've narrowed it down. We think that it's fibromyalgia. They're really hesitant, I think, to diagnose it because once they do, they're kind of like, we don't really know how to help you. It's not, there's no like cure for it. Yeah. And the treatments are super like wildly effect, like wildly variant in their efficacy. So, you know, they say like, oh, try exercise. They give you, you know, they'll try different drugs. I think I was maybe on 20 different prescriptions in the course of a year, just trying to find something that works because they, it's everything from like, they'll be like, oh, try these antidepressants. Sometimes that helps people. Oh, this drug is actually meant for people with epilepsy, but we've found it to be effective in a certain percentage of people who have fibromyalgia. So all these different drugs, which all had kind of weird side effects that I felt like were worse than the actual pain. And I think also just, I grew up definitely in a culture. I grew up in Wyoming. Everybody's kind of tough. And so it was kind of like, eh, pain, I can deal with it. It's annoying and draining, but it's just pain. Yeah. Most of the drugs had sort of like mentally numbing effects on me where I just didn't feel clear or sharp or is on top of it. And that to me was like unacceptable. Mm. Like, no, I can't. The trade off just didn't feel worth it. Mm. Um, And so we just kept trying more and more things. And eventually I just was like done. We gave we just kind of gave up. So I went off. I'm not on any of prescription meds and I've been not on prescription meds for like nine years. Wow. Um, and I just use like over the counter <laughs> pain, pain medication, um, which is also not great. It's not a great solution, but it like sort of is enough to, to like dull, dull enough of the pain sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I think you just get, you know, you just get used to something when you deal with it frequently. But yeah, yeah so that was like kind of the process was like this very long drawn out so many question marks, so many like scary things getting ruled out, thankfully. Um, but also just, fe- I mean, literally feeling crazy, especially because it, you become very like quickly aware of the fact that there is this still kind of this stigma around it. Like, you know, I, I couldn't even really tell if my rheumatologist thought that it was like a real thing or mm. just like, a, you know, because we talk about stress and I and these things are real and they actually do have an effect. But like. I, it sometimes felt like she didn't really think it was something like I would ask her about a new they, one of the few drugs that's approved for fibromyalgia specifically um, had just come out on the market. And I had remembered seeing an ad for it and I asked her about it and she was like, well, yeah, that's out. But it has you know, it also has negative side effects. And I just don't know if it's going to like work, be helpful. And like she just didn't even want, want me to try it. And mm. I was like. Okay, but meanwhile, you're giving me like eight thousand other drugs for everything you can think of. Yeah. Um, Were you? Did she bring up that she thought it might be fibromyalgia, or did you say to her? She. It was on right. It was on the initial list that my um, general practitioner had given me of like sort of what it could be. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I had kind of checked in and said like, "Hey, I know this was one of the things. Mm. Where are we at with that?" And you know. Eventually, she was like, yeah, 
let's, you know, we'll start kind of exploring that depending upon how you're responding to some of these other things they had been trying and some of this, these tests I had been having done. So, I mean, I think she was willing to at least like explore it. It's not like I had to force her to, to go that route, but I still felt a little bit like maybe it was more just that there was like something wrong with my thinking, you know, Mm, that there mm -hmm. was something wrong with me psychologically and that there really wasn't anything wrong with me. Um, and that's just like a weird feeling. And I mean, I definitely, it gave me really great perspective in some ways because since, you know, being diagnosed and living with fibromyalgia, I often meet people who've had it, who are for a long time, who are much older than me. Mm. And I, I just think to what their experience must've been like, because I mean, back in like the, even the eighties, they straight up thought like, no, this is psychosomatic. There is nothing wrong with you. Like you just need to like get your head in order basically. Wow. And to live for so long, like being treated that way. I, I just can't imagine. Yeah. Um, did you research it at all when you found out about when you got the diagnosis or did you already know a little bit about it? Were you like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Or was it kind of like, okay, time to get on WebMD and, and right. you know, just like <laughs> learn everything that I can. Right. I knew a little bit. I had done a little bit of reading. Um, at the time, I feel like this, when I first started experiencing symptoms, I didn't really even have, I had like a work computer, but I didn't even have like my own computer and yeah. I didn't have internet in my house. Um, wow. So I hadn't done like a ton of, and I don't, I mean, I'm sure WebMD existed. I just don't remember it being like a major thing. Um, so, but I did start reading um, and realizing that, okay, there there are a lot of people out there who have this and who are, you know, out there. I discovered there's like, fo- there's a lot of forums about it. And that almost, for me, it was almost like, reading those forums like should have made me feel better in a way because it's like oh I'm not alone but it actually made me feel a lot worse um because a lot of what I was seeing were just people who were like yeah like you know I'm in so much pain I can't leave my house I haven't worked in you know 10 years I like you know can't pick up my children like all of these things where I was just like oh no like this is not well this is not a life that I am like looking for no um like this sounds terrible Um, and that kind of, you know, tough girl Wyoming thing in me kind of rising up and being like, like you're tougher than this, you know, like these people are just wusses, you know, Mm. (laughs) like all of this weird judgment, uh, which I felt like simultaneously guilty about, but also like, yeah, but really I am tougher than that, you know, (laughs) (laughs) terrible. Uh, I love it. Um, And, but yeah, I mean, even at, especially at the time they hadn't, there wasn't a ton of studying being done. I looked to see if there were specialists who specialized in fibromyalgia and there was one, um, in all of like the Seattle area who had like a, there was like a a fibromyalgia clinic, but everything, they were only running clinical trials. There were no, like, you know, it wasn't super established. And then I also like would read like sort of sketchy things about the same doctor and was like, I don't know he might be a quack. I have no idea what's going on. Like, um, and it was really expensive to like get, get in with him. And even at the time we had really great insurance at the time, thankfully, cause so many doctor visits. Um, but I remember like he, he was so expensive, um, that even then, like, like even our really good insurance, like didn't cover it. Mm. And I was like, I don't know. I'm, it just felt like so sketchy. Um, 
that I ended up like not, not seeing him. Um, but really what I learned in my research was just that they hadn't done enough studying. Like they didn't really know anything about it. Um, that mostly like what I would find out there was anecdotal. There had been hardly any actual like clinical research done. Um, and that doctors couldn't even agree on sort of what uh, sort of system of the body it was like rooted in. Wow. So some people, you know, some people were like, oh, I think it's psychological. Others, I mean, the reason they send you to a rheumatologist is because they think it's something to do with like, you know, muscles or your skeletal system. Um, and then most of like the actual research, what, what little of it there was that was coming out was about it being more rooted in like the nervous system, that there was like something in the way that the brain is processing pain and the way that pain receptors in the body are functioning and what chemicals are being released and how the brain's processing those. And that to me made the most sense because I went from like, you know, one month being feeling fine to another month feeling this way and to having things that used to not cause me any pain suddenly caused me excruciating pain. And it was like, yeah, that, that makes sense that something is going wrong in my, my physical brain of like how my body is perceiving pain. Um, but there was just so little being done to really prove any of these theories. Um, that eventually I just kind of was like, I'm just like tired of, all this like mystery and I just don't, you know, I need to just like get on with my life. Yeah. And, like, seriously. Out how to deal with it. Yeah. Um, and I definitely kind of almost went cold Turkey from like reading about it. Like didn't, wasn't going on these like Facebook groups or the forums or anything just was like, you know, I'm just going to figure out how to manage this on my own. Um, which I think was, you know, not probably the most helpful path to choose, but it just felt like at the time I just felt so overwhelmed by the potential of like how many, you know, how, how many different opinions there were and just the different ways that people kind of tended to process how they live with it. And I just didn't, I wasn't open to kind of like being a sick person. I think like that mm. was such a hard shift for me. It's still, I mean, I've had this for, you know, almost 12 years and I still have a hard time like thinking of myself as like not being a healthy person um, because it's just not my, it's like not my MO. Um, so I think that kind of being able to come to grips with that was a big piece and it took me a long time and I still don't know that I'm totally there. <laughs> mm. Mm. Did you have people in your life at that time and, and kind of, around when you got diagnosed that had been a part of the journey with you of figuring it out and you know what was it like to to finally have an answer to share with them and how did they respond was it was it helpful were the things that you were like stop giving me advice you know what was that like yeah and there there were definitely people who had been with me through the whole journey and had known me from sort of pre pre illness to you know being in the midst of it who were, I think, all trying their best to be helpful. Um, and I think there were varying levels of response. Like some people definitely, I think, were very sympathetic and very worried. Um, and I think in that sort of sympathy reaction almost kind of made made it worse for me in some ways. Because I was like, I don't want you to feel sorry for me. Like, mm. just stop it. Um, others who I think 
you know, wanted to sort of just probably thought it was more helpful just to kind of ignore it and just like not, you know, never talk about it, which is probably that's like more my natural, <laughs> my natural tendency is like, let's just not talk about it. Yeah. Um, so it felt that almost felt helpful, but probably in retrospect would have been healthier to, <laughs> to have some kind of middle ground. Um, and a big piece of my life at the time, well, and all, you know, my life always is, um, I'm a Christian and go to church and have been really involved in church, like my whole life and was in a church at the time that was very big on prayer for physical healing and really believing like that God heals and that God wants to heal. And like, that's like, that's like the default is like, no, God always wants to heal you. Mm. And after, you know, after a year of getting of like everyone always wanting to pray for me, which of course I appreciate. It's very like kind and, and loving. Um, ju- it just started to feel like too much. And I just like, I just don't want prayer anymore. Like, please stop praying for me, Yeah, <laughs> which feels like so wrong and weird. And I felt guilty about being frustrated with it. Um, but really felt like, yeah, I've just, I've had enough prayer. Like it's not, it's not even that I, I don't even, I wouldn't say that I don't believe that, like, I believe that God can heal, but it wasn't that, I just didn't see it happening for me. Mm. And that isn't to say that tomorrow I might not wake up and maybe I feel 100% better and that would be amazing. Um, But I don't know. And it's possible that this will be how I am always. So being able to kind of accept that was important to me and constantly having people praying for healing and for that to not be the case felt, um, really challenging, um, Mm. in kind of a, like in not a good way. And I eventually really started to feel like a lot of my worth as, as like a, a person in the church, um, was kind of tied to whether or not I, I got healed or whether or not I was healthy. Mm. And it started to make me feel kind of disqualified from the things I was trying to do and the work that I was trying to do in the church and the prayer I was give, I was doing for others. Um, and that was really damaging. Um, it definitely has taken me a long time to get kind of out of that sort of phase of feeling like, yeah, because I'm sick, I'm not like, I'm not qualified to be helping people. Um, and you know, that's, it didn't stop me from continuing to kind of do, do that work and to, to volunteer and do all of those things, but it definitely messed with me and, and ultimately, you know, kind of led to some relationships that were kind of fractured and that I, you know, I don't think will ever be what they were because Mm. there were people who just could not wrap their brains around the fact that, um, that I'm, I might not get healed and that that didn't mean that there was something wrong with me as it, when it came to my like relationship with God. Um, because it, that's kind of the underlying message. I think when you're constantly being told like, well, no, if God always wants to heal, well, if he always wants to heal, then why am I not healed? Does that mean that I'm doing something wrong or that, you know, God is displeased with me or whatever that is. And that's just not, I just don't, you know, it's, that's not a part of my theology anymore. And Mm. this journey has really been a big piece of kind of coming to that, that belief, I think. So I actually appreciate the experience because it's given me, I think a better perspective on that and helps me 
I have so much more, I think, um, empathy and just sensitivity to other people that I, that I meet now who are dealing with any kind of illness, but especially chronic illness, who are also kind of trying to hold that tension in like a, a space of faith, um, around healing and, and being, being ill. So, yeah. Yeah. What did you, what did you say to people, um, when you got to that fed up point where you're like, stop praying for me? You know, how did you express that in a way that was really letting yourself enter into your process that has gotten you to this point? Right. Um, I mean, I think initially, thankfully, part of kind of the the culture of the church I was in at the time wasn't just that, like, people would just be like, you know, praying for you without any any like amount of permission. There would usually be like, oh, can we pray for you? And for the longest time, I just felt like, well, I'm going to be, I'm going to come off as such a jerk if yeah. I say no, or people are going to think that I don't believe yeah. if I say no. And so I always said yes. And eventually it just got to the point where I would say like, no, it's okay. Like I'm good. Um, you know, like this is something that, that's, that I'm working out between, between myself and God. Like this is part of my personal journey of faith. And I don't always feel like it needs to be like drawn into these like public spaces. I would, you know, so things like that were really um, helpful for me to be able to kind of start stepping away from that kind of just the feelings that that brought up in me. And Mm. I think I've come to a place now where occasionally people will still, you know, I still go to church and I still go to a church that believes in healing. Um, And occasionally people will still say like, you know, I really would like to pray for you or I feel like I'm supposed to pray for you. And I can like, now I can accept that. But I also know in our current, the current community that we're in, I just know where most people are coming from. I know Mm. that they're coming from a similar place of understanding that like you can pray for somebody, but also understand that if, if what you're praying doesn't happen, that it doesn't mean there's something wrong with that person. Yeah. (laughs) It's just like, we don't understand. We don't understand God. Like God's ways are higher than our ways. And sometimes that means terrible things. And there's a crazy tension there and a lot of struggle in understanding that. And I just, you know, I don't know. It's, Mm. it's like a hard line to hold sometimes because I don't get it. I don't Mm. get why. Mm. I don't get why all kinds of terrible things are happening in the world everywhere. And I certainly don't understand why they're happening in my body, (laughs) but I don't think that they're always incompatible. So to believe that God is, but also that terrible things are happening. So I think that's a big piece of it is just kind of knowing that there's, I, I can trust the people that are in the faith community that I'm part of. And then also just knowing that like when people even if, if somebody who's from the outside or somebody I don't know very well, like, like occasionally, occasionally people will find out cause I don't talk about this very much. So people will find out and they'll be like, Oh, I did. I had no idea. Like, can I pray for you? And they're like really excited to pray for me. And I'm like, yes. And, and that's like me extending grace towards them, I think, and sort of letting them be where they're at in their own journey, but also recognizing that like what's happening there doesn't, I don't have to like take that on myself, you know? Yeah. And that, it's okay. And I know that people's hearts are in the right place mm. and just trusting that like your heart's in the right place. And this may not, you know, you may not be as, as helpful as you think you're being, Yeah, but I know you're trying to help and I'm okay with kind of just sort of sitting through that. Mm. And, and, you know, and who knows? I, I, like, I can't say that that, that kind of person praying for me isn't going to make a difference in some way. So yeah. that's very um, gracious of you though, to, to, like meet other people where they're at in their process while you're in the midst of yours and, and allow them to kind of almost like, it's almost a little bit like making it about them. Like instead of it just being like, Oh, 
wow. And then connecting with you in that space, it's all of a sudden like, oh, hang on a second. I got something for you. Watch me do this. (laughs) And it's like, and one of my really dear friends has um, a child with Down syndrome and she, when, whenever they're in like a church space, they've had people literally say like, I want to pray for your child. I can, like, I can heal her of Down syndrome. And they're Mm -hmm. like, no, like that's actually offensive. Like that's really offensive. Like just, just don't do that. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes people do get healed of things and there are all sorts of stories all around the world of stuff like that happening. So who knows? And maybe it'll happen. But like you said, just it's often about their process, um, but it's still very gracious of you to come to that place because I think a lot of people would go through something like that and feel like turned off just in general of like alienated from their own community and their own faith community going through something like that and just being like, okay, I got to get, I got to get out of here. Like you people can't hold space for me and what I'm going through. Um, so you're like going through your own thing and also holding space for other people to process what you're going through and make it about them. <laughs> right. And, and I'm and it's, it's tricky and I'm not always good at it. You know, I'm not, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not trying to be like, Oh yes, I'm so amazing. At well, this. no, I'm, but, um, I'm saying you but are. No. And thank you. It's definitely, uh, it's, it's a, it's a balance, I think. And, and sometimes I do have to like sort of chuck in with myself and know where I'm at. And if there's days where, yeah, people might say, can I pray for you? And if they're not somebody that I know is like safe for me, I have to say, like, I really appreciate your heart and I appreciate your intent. And you are welcome to, like, pray for me, like, at home or yeah, across the room. In your but, own like, time. I'm not in a place today where I want to, like, be a part of that. Um, and, you know, and that I think is usually received, you know, if received well. Because, I, again, I do think people's hearts are in the right place and they, you know, they want, they just want to see you know, they, they see someone in pain and like think and don't want that to be so. And that, mm. and that's hard. And I think we all know that feeling, you know, I think whether it's someone near you that's in physical pain or just seeing what's happening in the world around us, you know, on a daily basis, especially in this day and age, it's, it's hard to not feel compelled to want to do something. Yeah. Um, and I think in communities of, you know, of, a faith where healing is a part of your theology. It's that's like what you do. It's like what you're supposed to do. You know, it's like, that's what we see Jesus doing in the Bible. So yeah, I get why people go there, but it's also, it has really given me a different, um, I think just perspective on the, just the, the, I don't know, the best practices when it comes to that sort of thing, you know, and not just like, sort of assaulting strangers with your desire to pray for them. <laughs> yeah. What do you think it says about humans and and just even what comes up for humanity when when there is illness? A word like illness, uh, you know, something like someone is suffering um, and the fact that it's so hard for us to just accept that and hear that and go, oh, that's a part of life. I'm going to just hear that. But instead it, ha- it, it goes into a, like, oh, fix it or change it or, you know, be a hero here or like I have a solution. Like I can only imagine the number of times you've said what you've, you know, you've shared your, your um, fibromyalgia condition with someone and then they've said like, oh, I ha- have I got the thing for you. And even if it's not God, even if it's not prayer, right. I literally bet – a few hundred dollars for every single that I just bet you've heard some some real doozies and I would I want to know what do you think that says about 
just humans and and maybe even just America and how we see illness and how we view um, even just like connecting with people who are suffering. Um, does that question make sense? Yeah, totally. I'd love to hear your thoughts. No, and I think that's, I mean, that's really, I think, what's at the heart of of this issue, but also so many other things is really how do we, yeah, how do we process like the fact that we're not all in the same place physically? And I think that that's the hard thing is that our own experiences of what our own body is and does and how it feels is is all we have. You know, we can't physically be in the space of another person. Um and so we build expectations around what that looks like and what does being healthy even mean. Um, and I feel like there's so many places where this plays out in different ways. And, and even in my own journey, I mean, I can remember part of sort of learning to accept kind of this as a, as a piece of my identity in a way that like, yes, like I, my identity isn't based in the fact that I have this illness, but it is a piece of me and it, 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 how I respond to the world around me is based on small, some small part, the way that my physical body feels and the way that I'm constantly in pain and learning that really led me down this path of kind of learning about a lot of other sort of spaces where this is an issue. And one thing that came to mind as you were asking that question was, um, getting to know a lot more about, um, the deaf community mm. and a big thing in the deaf community from what, you know, what I've heard and read and heard from people who are part of that community is that deafness, I think, in in the hearing world is viewed as something that's like broken. It's like, oh, there's something wrong with you yeah. if you can't hear. Um, and in the deaf community, there's even a division between people who sort of see deafness as like, no, this is like it's it's like the same thing as having like blue eyes or brown eyes. Like some people are hearing and some people are not. And there's not. um it's not something that needs to be fixed. Like this is just a, another way of being. And even in, even in the deaf community, there are people who, you know, will go the route of like the cochlear implant and, and sort of becoming like f basically making your body become like hearing. Um, and that is often viewed as like, no, that's like not, that's not what you do. And that to me, when I first read that, I was like, wow, like, yeah, I totally think about it that way Yeah. as a hearing person that like, if I meet a deaf person, you know, yeah, I'm going to like be thinking like, man, what could we be doing to like help? And it's coming from that good place of like wanting to be helpful and wanting to see a person who. I'm imagining must feel struggle, you know, with being the way that they are. Um, but like, I'm not them and I don't live in that space and I can't possibly understand like where they're at and, and what their perspective on that is. And kind of, I think learning those things and even realizing my own, my own kind of bias towards what's healthy and what's not healthy, um, really, a, I think, gave me more grace for the people who are constantly being like, oh, well, maybe you just need to eliminate gluten. <laughs> That's yeah. their, like, healthy suggestion. Or, oh, I heard that this, you know, this thing does wonders. Um, I have a lot more grace for that because I, I know that, like, in other spaces, I'm that person. Yeah. Um, and also has helped me to kind of hopefully be more open to sort of shifting myself when it comes to the way that I'm perceiving other people and what health is. But it does feel like... In so many regards, there's kind of an ideal of like what the being a human is. Mm. And I think especially in Western culture and even more so in American culture, where 
not only, you know, I think we, we talk a lot about, you know, sort of beauty ideals and things like that. And I think this is in a weird way, kind of an extension of that, which is that, oh yeah, like an ideal human body is not supposed to be in pain or tired or whatever, but it's also like, well, how do we know that? Even just like, think like things being classified as disorders. It's like, there's something that's like wrong. There's something that's not following the normal order. And, you know, and I realize there are like, you know, scientific medical foundations for how they determine these things. But at the same time, this is, this is what order looks for me, looks like for me now. Like this is me being a human. This is me being alive. Mm. It's me being in pain. And you have to, at some point kind of accept this is going to be my normal because I feel like it's a bit painful if you don't, you know, a bit emotionally painful to constantly be thinking like, well, maybe tomorrow I'll wake up and I'll feel different. Um, that's a hard space to live in of just constantly being like, like waiting for something to be better or something to change. Um, and that's not to say that I've, I fully accept like that I'm always going to be sick or that I'm always even going to have the exact same like experience of like having fibromyalgia because symptoms can shift and things change over time. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I do think if the, if we could shift our perspective as a culture on like kind of what being normal means, it would be more helpful for those of us that kind of fall outside the sort of ideal standard. Mm. <laughs> um, and I think, too, I mean, like you were saying with with your friends with their kids with Down syndrome, it's like and I, I hear that kind of stuff all the time, too, I think, especially when it comes to sort of the faith space, but it's like, if we can just look at people as being like people at where they're at, um, I think we'd all have kind of a lot less like emotional trauma that gets tied into physical issues that are already difficult enough. Yeah. 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 Well, and if it, and if it is about us breaking down the idealism that is so present, I mean, like you were talking before about, you know, you and your body shape and that being a thing that people talk to, like talk about when it comes to this. And I think about how many people are, there's like the body positivity movement now where people are saying like, hang on a second, the number of people that look like the cover of magazines in the nineties are like 3% compared to what an actual normal human looks like. And yet everyone who doesn't look like that person that was on the cover of magazines all through the 90s and early 2000s, they're made to feel like something's wrong with them. And so it is just challenging, like, hang on a second, your normal and your idealized existence might not be mine. And what does it look like to realize that there are 7 billion people on the planet and maybe not everyone is either right or wrong. Maybe there is a huge spectrum of what existence looks like, feels like, thinks like, smells like, sees like, hears like. It's so diverse. And I think it's, um, it makes sense to me that at least right now, while it's, while it's kind of the early stages of people coming out and talking about what their existence is like, but in these early stages, it's still kind of for a lot of people like, oh, oh, I didn't even, oh, I didn't know, oh, I didn't know. And and so it's almost like we have to be, I have to be taught, like, what's the etiquette? What helps? 
when I hear about someone's existence that's different to mine, rather than just being like, oh, oh, here's how to be more like me. Right. What actually helps? Like, what actually supports you when you do share what you're going through or that you have a chronic illness? When you share that with someone, what is, let's say, like, what are three things not to do and what <laughs> actually helps? What actually supports? Right. And I, I mean, I think that's a really good question. And I don't know. I don't know if I even have three things. <laughs> what are like what three things that you've been like, question. please never let this happen to me again. So we've had, right. we have pray for you. Yeah. That's I mean, that, that can definitely be one of them. Not always, but definitely, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. Uh-huh. Um, and really, I think, I mean, like we've already talked about just this sense of like, Oh, I know the thing that's going to fix you. Um, whether it's some dietary thing. And I, I think that's where most people jump, um, in this day and age, because we've become so interested in sort of, you know, naturopathic medicine and sort of how, you know, eating affects our physical bodies and all of that, that I think people want to go there. Like they think like, oh yeah, well I heard so-and-so who had this other thing, you know, that definitely helps them. Um, yeah. And ultimately it's just, I think just remembering that if I'm sharing this with you, well, first of all, if, especially, I mean, granted, I'm doing this on a podcast now, so I guess the like <laughs> secret is out. Look what you've done. But previously, you know, if I got to the point where this is something I was talking about with you, it shows that I like have a level of trust with you. So assume that if I'm talking about this with you, it's not because I think that you're going to have a solution that I haven't thought of, or all of the doctors I've seen haven't thought of, or every person I've encountered up to this point who knows this about me hasn't thought of. Assume that I'm telling you because I want you to know me and be able to like see me better and to also understand when, you know, things are happening that maybe you wouldn't otherwise have the context for why sometimes I have to bail on plans last minute or whatever it is. Um, that that's what it's about. It's about being known and seen. It's not about, I don't need you to fix me. Um, you know, I mean, sure, if you found the cure and you wanted to share, fine, but like make sure it's a cure before you suggest it, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> um, that So that's a huge piece, I think, is just knowing that if somebody is sharing with you something like this, it's a it's because they want they want they want to be because they're in a relationship with you. They want to be known by you, not because they're looking for you to fix them. Mm. Um, and I think another piece, too, is also and I, I know my friend Emily, Emily McDowell, who's become kind of well known for her sort of cancer empathy cards. Um, something she often talks about is just how when you're diagnosed with cancer, often what the kind of responses you get from people are like, oh, yeah, my my grandfather had that. He's dead now. Oh, and it's like, oh, my God, like that is not what I need to hear in this season. Like, not at all. You know, like, yes, I'm aware that cancer is deadly. You don't have to remind me. Um, and I think I often get those kinds of stories, not so much that people died because fibromyalgia is ultimately not like it's not fatal. Um, but people often say like, oh, yeah, my aunt has fibromyalgia. Yeah, I mean, she's on like disability and never leaves the house. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff where you're just like, oh. That's, I'm sorry that your aunt struggles with that. Like, you know, like, I don't know what to say to that. Don't say that to me. Um, the flip side of that, though, that I've been thinking about a lot and actually kind of part of the sort of thinking um, as we started talking about this subject being an episode was a lot of people, the, their initial reaction to me is, 
oh, I would have never imagined that you were that you were dealing with that. And I, I know they mean well, and I think that it's meant as a compliment to say like, oh man, you get so much done. And you're so like active and you do all of these things. And I do take it as like a pride point, but I don't think that I should. I think that that reaction is coming from that same place of like, oh, I would have never guessed you're sick because you act like a healthy person. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that messes with you psychologically. Like, I have so much, like, sort of, I have this, like, just ball of tangled up weirdness in my mind now, I think, because I get that reaction so frequently. Like, oh, I would have never guessed. And sometimes it's in conjunction with that, oh, I would have never guessed. My aunt has fibromyalgia and she never leaves the house. <laughs> and you seem to go nonstop, you know? Oh, wow. Um, and it, it really makes me feel like, Oh, well, if I want to be perceived as a a successful business person or whatever, um, you know, a good friend or a good neighbor or a good Christian or whatever it is, I have to look all the time like I'm bigger and better than this illness, which is constantly trying to drag me down and trying to keep me in bed because that's like how I feel in the morning. Um, And so I think though people mean well and and I think are trying to be complimentary, that reaction too is just not, it's not super helpful um, in this kind of reverse, maybe unexpected way. Mm. Um, So, and, and that may not be, I'm not speaking for everyone who has fibromyalgia. That may not be everyone's experience, but that's mm. definitely been something I've been reflecting on a lot lately, just in this, the kind of era of everybody is a hustler and hustling is like so cool and hip uh-huh. yep. <laughs> and people kind of reinforcing like, oh, but you're such a hustler. Um, how, how do you do it? It's like, then it makes me feel like on days that I don't have a hustle in me and the days that I do need to stay in bed because my body just physically cannot get up or do anything that I'm like failing as myself. Because if my identity is wrapped up in that sort of, I'm, you know, I'm getting all this stuff done. Um, what happens on days that I don't get anything done? Mm. Um, so just something I've been thinking about. A yeah. Lot yeah. I mean, I, I can see that being, being a, a response, like a genuine reaction for people because you know, you, you do, you do do so much and you are so good at what you do. And so it, I think, especially when right now, when we're in the midst of kind of deconstructing so many belief systems that we have about people who are different to us, that this idea of, Oh, chronic illness means you're like less than or chronic illness means you can't be successful or chronic illness, like whatever the belief systems that we have individually or as as a culture or as a country um, to just kind of be like, oh, it's it's almost like you're popping the belief balloon right in front of them and they don't have a chance to like go process it and then not like not like vomit their process right. on you like they're just sort of like oh hang on you don't look like what my brain says someone that's sick should look like um and so i mean it's almost like you're having to be the person that takes the brunt of that in this moment in time as we're all unlearning and relearning um because there, you know, there are so many people, like you said, you don't actually talk about this publicly. There are so many people who 
also would be going through things like this. Like you'll probably get so many messages from people being like, I have this or I didn't know or blah, blah, blah. blah. And it, it is one of those things that until there's permission in our society to come out and say, I go through this, I have this, and to not then worry, can I get a job if I have this? Or can I be respected in my community if I have this? Just almost like you're you're dealing with the wave, the first wave of people being like, huh, hang on a second, you don't look like what I thought you would look like. Um, so I'm almost hearing that what you what you need is just to be seen. And to know that if you are speaking up about it and sharing it vulnerably with someone, that almost like all you would ever want is just someone to say, like, thank you for letting me know. Yeah. And I think I mean, I think that's often a good like posture to take whenever somebody is sharing something that's like personal and that's outside of your like experience is to just sort of listen and Mm. to say, oh, like, I didn't know that. I'm so glad I know that now. And, and maybe to ask even, sometimes I think people are afraid to ask, like, what do you need or how can I help you? Um, and I think that's always so refreshing is to hear that I, for years, I felt unable to tell like employers or potential employers that like this was an issue, even though sometimes it would kind of eventually become like a problem in a job. Um, but I just didn't want, I didn't want to go into like a new job with like a stigma of like, oh, don't, we can't ask Danae to do that because she's sick or whatever. And when I started working um, with Justina Blakeney at the Jungalo, um, I early on told her, you know, kind of, hey, just a heads up, this is kind of what I deal with. And this is kind of what it means sometimes. And that job was was great because there was enough flexibility that there would be days where if I wasn't physically up for it, I could say like, hey, I'm just going to work from bed today. Um, but her kind of reaction was based more in the idea of like, OK, well, how like what what can I do? How can I be a part of making you know, giving you the space you need to be able to do what, what, you know, what you need to do because that's what your job is, but within, in like a realm that works for you. And that was so helpful just to kind of be able to say like, oh, well, you know, as long as it were, you know, as long, as long as it's not like a day I need to be there for a shoot, like if, if I need to say like, hey, I need to stay home and work from home today, that that's okay. And to just sort of know that I had the permission to say that and to be like vulnerable and honest about it was so refreshing. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so I really appreciated that experience of, of how she handled that. Um, and it's really, it's helped me to also kind of be able to, to come from that place now that I'm an employer, um, (laughs) to also know that like, if, you know, if people are, if there's something that people are dealing with, that there's, there's a way to kind of handle that so that it feels like you're giving people the space that they need to ask for what they need. Um, and not to just assume that, you know what they need. Mm. Um, because I think that's such a big thing. Like we, I think we, in our desire to help and in our sort of experiences of like, Oh, well, you know, I don't know about this particular thing, but I know when I'm not feeling well, this is what helps me or whatever. But yeah, just not assuming that we know what somebody else needs, but actually asking them, what do you need? How can I help you? And not just, um, 
yeah, not just kind of letting our own assumptions of what is helpful uh, sort of roll them over. Um, so, so, okay. So last sort of question on this, I know you've been, you've been married for basically the whole time that you have had, that you've known that you had fibromyalgia. Um, and so what is it, what is it like to have an, an illness, a chronic disease, illness, whatever the term is, maybe not just for you, but maybe someone else that's listening that has something and, um, trying to either be a good partner and know what someone might need or just like how to continue to navigate the changes and the day-to-day changes um, when you're living with someone who has that. Maybe is, are there things that your husband does that really support you and really work um, in, a, in a way that you can let us know about? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think so essential because there is a level of learning together, like what it means to live with you know, a chronic illness. Um, and it adds a level of stress to any relationship, I think, to kind of be sort of navigating that together Mm. and to be navigating it from like totally different spaces, of course, because as the person who's experiencing the pain or the illness, uh, it's, it's a different way of thinking about it than the person who's witnessing it and being affected by like sort of the symptoms and the, you know, um, effects of it. So I think it's, it's, it's such a challenge to kind of figure that out. And I know in my own marriage, we definitely struggled and I think still have struggles over how do we do this in a way that works for both of us? And Mm. how do we, how do we continue to, um, to be good partners to each other? Because it's easy. I think sometimes for me at least to feel like, because I'm the one who has the illness that, I have so many more needs and I'm so needy and to constantly feel like I'm just asking for more help or I need more from you. Um, and for, you know, I worry that he thinks that, you know, he's just constantly having to help me and is never getting anything out of it for himself. And he's a very, I mean, my husband is a very sort of selfless person anyway, so it makes me extra concerned. Um, But we have, I think, gotten better at navigating some of these things. And there's a lot of realities. And this would vary depending on, you know, what what illness you're talking about. But with fibromyalgia specifically, um, something I was not at all anticipating uh, ahead of time is just that, you know, sex is a challenge, Um, that it's it's a challenge to kind of approach something that's supposed to be this like you know, feel good kind of situation, uh, when it doesn't feel good Mm. (laughs) because nothing feels good because touch doesn't feel good because, you know, very few physical interactions, even on like, you know, out in like a platonic sphere feel good. Um, hugs are very painful. Handshakes are painful. Like sometimes people don't understand, you know, why I don't want to be, you know, I'm not a huge hugger and it's mostly because I, if you hug me back, I feel like you're crushing me to death. Um, so Figuring out how to navigate something like sex is very tricky and very like fraught with emotions and baggage and all of these things. Um, I think especially coming from a Christian background and, and expecting, you know, that like, you know, I was I was a virgin when I got married and 
expecting that like, oh, I was a good girl and I saved myself for marriage. And that should mean that like sex is amazing. Mm. Uh, And pretty quickly experiencing like, oh, nope, not so amazing. Kind of terrible and painful. Uh, (laughs) But also feeling really bad about that and not wanting to be honest about it. It took me so long to really even admit to my husband that like, this is really hard for me. And it's really like not, it's not like pleasurable at all. Even I think things that, you know, once you've kind of pushed through certain aspects of, of pain, um, there's things, I mean, to be totally frank, like having an orgasm when you have something like fibromyalgia can often be more painful than the actual like act of sex to begin with because your your body is feeling constantly kind of overstimulated. And so to have such like an intense reaction that affects like so many different like parts of your, your physical body, um, can actually be sort of terrible. Um, and so to have to kind of have that conversation with like your spouse is really, or, you know, it was just really hard for me to be honest about it. Um, but ultimately, you know, it was a conversation that had to happen. And, you know, for his part, I think he's he's done such an amazing job of try of really trying hard to like understand that and support me in it. Um, but also, we've had to find a way to make it work. You know, because he has desires and and you know, like there's a, a certain physical need that he has, and I want to be able to provide that. Um, so it's just been a, a balancing act of trying to figure out what the best way to kind of sit in that space together is and. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I won't say like we're a complete success story and we've totally figured that part out, but we're getting better at it, I think. Mm. And, um, and some of it is really like having to admit that we're having to recognize that there's a level at which anything that I do on a daily basis is causing me pain. Um, I mean, sitting here right now, you know, if I start to pay attention to my body too hard, I start to realize, oh yeah, like I can feel where my like legging like hem is pushing into my leg and it actually is kind of painful you know and those are things that I've just learned to ignore because I would never get anything done or be able to function if I was constantly paying attention to my body Um, and as weird as that sounds it is a piece I think of managing chronic pain is having to figure out when to tune out and when to tune in and kind of being aware of your body but also not being completely ruled by your pain and sex in a way is just another it's just another thing that's a part of you know my my physical existence that I can either choose I can choose to engage in even though it's going to cause me pain much like I choose to go to work or I choose to whatever even though I know it'll cause me pain Um, but to also recognize that like there's a piece of it that is it's not just for me. Like mm. having sex isn't just about my me and my needs and whether or not I'm in pain. There's also an aspect of what what's in it for my husband and kind of just finding a good balance that doesn't feel like I'm being like, you know, giving into misogyny or something, mm-hmm. because that's absolutely not the kind of um, place that my husband's coming from. Um, but finding a way to make it work for both of us, because it's give and take just like everything else in a relationship. Mm. Um, so that's been a, that's been probably the biggest challenge in terms of just 
kind of getting more comfortable with like talking about that and admitting it. Like, you know, it just was really difficult because you don't want to be the you don't want to be the one that's like, sorry, like we can't have sex because I feel terrible all the time. And yeah. also they're never really being there's no end in sight. It's not like I'm like, oh, I'm just having a bad day tomorrow it'll be better it's pretty much it's the same always and it may always be this way so having to find a way to to move forward that doesn't you know that doesn't negatively horribly impact both of us Mm. Um, but maybe it's you know there's a little bit of there's a little bit of pleasure to be found a little bit of you know kind of pain to be sacrificed in a way and um and that's where i think we've landed and what seems to be working so That I would say is the hardest aspect of just being in a relationship and living with chronic pain and being in a romantic relationship and living with chronic pain. But there are other other aspects as well. And my husband has been really amazing in recognizing when I need a break or when I'm I've pushed myself too far because I'm not always good at recognizing it in myself. Um, Like I said, my tendency is to you know, go after things and get stuff done and really like anything that I do, I'm really doing fully and with all of my being. And I don't always have a lot to spend uh, in terms of energy or physical stamina. Um, and I almost always overspend, so to speak. Um, and sometimes it's helpful to have somebody who's there saying like, uh, are you sure that's a good idea? Or maybe we should just stay home tonight. Uh, when I'm like, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. I can push through. It's fine. <laughs> He's like, Wyoming girl, <laughs> time to stay home. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, even just like a willingness to, you know, for, for us, for sometimes date nights look like us, like, you know, watching TV on the couch and him, you know, rubbing my calf because I have a crazy pain that's like not going away. And I just need a little bit of like, you know, soothing relief. Um, and that being okay has been really helpful. And Mm. it helps that we're, I think we're both naturally a little more kind of prone to be homebody. So it kind of helps, but, um, just having that kind of permission from Mm. your partner, I think is really important because, I think if he was pushing me to sort of be who the person who I often, I think, used to frame myself as just as like, oh, I'm, you know, before I got sick, I was I was in like a band and playing shows and up until four in the morning and then going to work at like seven. And, you know, like I was like living hard in in some ways Um, and really just like completely exhausting myself every day just because like there were so many things I wanted to do and so much that I wanted to experience. And I wasn't willing to like be one of these people who sleeps it until 10. Like that's just never been my way. When I, even when I was in high school, I used to tell people I'll sleep when I'm dead. Uh, (laughs) Like I just thought sleep was such a waste of time. And now there are days where I have to sleep. It's like all I can do. Um, because I'm just so exhausted. Um, so fatigued in so much pain and having somebody who who can say to me yeah I think that's a good idea you should stay in bed today and not be like constant you know kind of pushing at me like oh are you sure you don't want to get up and get some stuff done or Mm. oh don't you have that thing you need to do has been really helpful um and I think for my part having myself recognizing that 
I have a role to play as not being just, I'm, I'm not just like a victim in this and that I can, I can make an effort to figure out where I can kind of meet, meet him in the middle. Um, even when I'm having a hard time, you know, with whatever, and how do I make him feel supported knowing that he's, he's definitely living in a space of my pain being part of his life, that it doesn't just affect me, that it affects him too. And how do I, how do I help in that? And how do I make sure that the things that he needs that I can provide, um, that I can do that. Mm. And it's not always easy to know that because, you know, when you're exhausted, it's, you know, for instance, when we were first married, kind of our rhythm was I, I love to cook and I'm a good cook. And so I do all the, I, you know, the thing was I'll do all the cooking and he'll do the dishes and, you know, everything else we kind of like split up evenly. And, um, now it's, you know, there are days where by the time I get home, I mean, especially with the shop, it's, you know, I often, I, most days I start work at six or six thirty AM and I often don't get home until after the shop closes. So I'm not home until like seven 30 or eight at night and I get home and if it's still my responsibility to cook dinner, there are days where my legs are just like, yeah, no, that's not happening. Yeah. And so just even sort of finding a way to do that, like to make dinner and to sort of like show him like my attention and care in that way when I can. But then his ability to recognize that if there's a day where I'm like, you know, I'm so exhausted for him to say, OK, I'll make this thing that's in the freezer or why don't we get a pizza or <laughs> whatever mm-hmm. it is. That give and take is is so essential. Um, and I think, too, just kind of giving or cutting ourselves some slack because it definitely took me a long time to not feel like a terrible wife for all of these things, for like not wanting to have sex every single day and for not always being like super on top of the house cleaning and making a great meal every night and doing all of these things that were kind of somewhere in my brain is like, oh, this is what a good wife does. Um, To give myself like, yeah, it's okay. That isn't, there is no one way to Mm. to be a good wife, that we're good partners to each other by listening to each other and supporting each other and finding ways to, you know, show people to show our partner love in the way that they receive love. Um, but within the confines of what we're physically capable of doing, what we're emotionally able to do, um, and to always be looking for, is there an opportunity for me to grow in this? And there probably is. And how do I do that? But also to be honest enough to say, I'm growing in this and I'm probably still really bad at it, Mm. but I'm working on it and I want to find a way to like get better at it and to show you the support that you need and the love that you need. Um, so yeah, I think as in any relationship, whether or not illness is a piece of it, I think it's, it's similar just in that we, we always need to be on the lookout for ways to show love in a way that the other person can receive it because I think our tendency I mean my tendency is to show love in the way that I receive love yeah (laughs) but that's not gonna do another person any good maybe Mm -hmm. um and I think illness you know makes it a little trickier maybe but ultimately I don't know that it's all that different than any relationship Mm. Mm. Well, thank you for being being willing to be vulnerable and share about that, because I think um, 
there are there are so many people that feel so alone in their experience and and like you said like the idea of what it should be or i should be this kind of wife or i should be this kind of partner or there's something wrong with me or you know it needs to look or be like this and i think that there's so much shame attached to that and especially like you were saying when it when it comes to sex and especially if you have any sort of upbringing that with baggage of this is what it will be like follow these steps and this is what you'll get and then you follow those steps and you don't get that thing it's very it's very lonely it's very it's very like oh my gosh what did i do wrong like is it me why why is this happening to me it's very um i think a lot of people carry a lot of shame and and so even just to be able to first of all speak to your partner about it is is a huge step but then to also be able to say it public in a public space and say this is happening or this has happened um there are so many people that that that's their reality and honestly the more that i've grown and learned and heard and seen just in my own life the more i've realized that there is no there is no normal there is no like everything is normal in the sense that in in the spectrum of what works for you and what works for you and your partner together that's it like everything out like who cares right. and but i think that there's so much shame because there is this expectation that we often put on ourselves especially when we maybe didn't grow up in a community that maybe sex was talked about a lot and so there wasn't a spectrum of like here are all the ways that it that your sex life might look when you're sexually active and they're all okay it was more like no it will look like this it will feel like this and then all of a sudden for like 85% of the people who did that and didn't get those results, it's lonely and so like, what do I do now? Like, who do I even talk to? Because I feel broken. So thank you for being willing to even say that because I'm sure that there will be so many people that just even feel permission to like take a deep breath and go, oh, and, and hearing you share that. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Something that's been coming up a lot lately, just in my my own life, is just because I'm I'm getting older. All of our friends are like definitely that are our age are having kids, and everyone's like, "Oh, are you guys gonna have kids?" And there's a lot of like um, weird extra baggage, I think, with the idea of having kids with like a chronic illness, because there's definitely this question of like, "Am I gonna? Am I physically capable of being a mother? Am mm. I physically capable of even being like an adoptive mother or a foster mother? I don't know if I have the energy to chase a child around." Um, <laughs> <laughs> that kind of stuff. So that was the only. I think that's the only other thing I thought of that that feels like it's been in the the stream of thing of talk lately but yeah is that something that you are still processing do you feel like you have do you feel like you guys you two together have settled on we have i mean i think we're still in the like maybe we still i think we would still like we like the idea of having kids and we both sort of feel like at the end of our lives you know we may look back and regret if we don't have kids we might feel regret about it but I still don't know what that means in terms of what the solution is. So, no, I don't necessarily feel like I have an answer. Mm. <laughs> it's just like a it's a it's something I didn't really ever expect. It, it, I didn't early early on in being sick. I didn't imagine that this is like something that would affect so many different pieces of what my life would look like. And this is definitely a big one because I mean, beyond just the average, like the normal, I think 
anxiety of like, oh God, I'm like over, I'm like approaching 40 and I still haven't had a baby um, that I think a lot of women feel. Mm. Um, uh, there's an added level of like, also, is it even a good idea for me to have a baby? Is it responsible for me to have a baby? Like, mm. Am I doing a child a service, you know, by having, having them? Um, and even beyond that, like, okay, fine. If I can't have a baby, maybe I want to do something else. And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of women aren't, aren't able to, to bear children themselves. And that's, I think, um, that's something that even that I could, I think I could come to grips with, but the idea of like, do I even physically have the capacity to be a mother at all? Um, unless it was like a teenager <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> who can like fend for themselves. I don't know. Um, I, I think especially, you know, I grew up, my mom, um, would get chronic migraines. I didn't know it when I was a child that that's what was going on, but she would often be like in bed for a day and, you know, you couldn't talk to her or, you know, she had to be in a dark room with like no noise. And I remember as a kid just being so like, I don't understand what's going on. Mm. And I'm like, dude, I don't want that for my kids. That feels super scary. And really, you know, I think having that experience kind of pushed me into this place of like, oh, I refuse for that to be my, my children's experience, you know, like mm. in this, in this way of just not, not wanting them to, to go through that, um, which, you know, is nothing I don't think is anything to like, I'm not reflecting on my mother, not being a good mother. She was a great mom, but that was definitely, you know, a piece of, of just like where she was at with her own physical, um, space was mm. that migraines were a big thing. And yeah, like now I get migraines and I totally get it. Like you know, sometimes you just need a dark, a dark room. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So I don't know. There's no, I don't think there's an easy answer. And mm. I, I don't know that I'll, I can know until I did it, you know? Um, yeah. Maybe it would be fine. Maybe it won't. But yeah. it feels scary when you're talking about bringing a little life into your life and how the things that affect you are going to affect them. And it's a, it's a mess in a way. Mm. So, yeah. So it's still very much a, a daily monthly process to kind of think about both how you feel and also the life choices that you're going to make, um, and, and how that plays into it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's not even just kids, it's everything, you know, even as I contemplated, I've always wanted my, you know, I've kind of always had my own business. I often had like a side business in the background while I was doing a day job. Um, and I've been, you know, I've felt like an entrepreneur pretty much my whole life. But as I really jumped into like full time only doing my own business and a business that's relatively physical, um, realizing, oh, this is, am I sure this is the right choice? Like, mm. am I physically capable of doing this job and keeping this company running? Um, especially in this space of, or especially with fibromyalgia, one of the big sort of features <laughs> so to speak, is kind of a, a thing they call fibro fog, which is where you kind of just at certain points in the day often lose kind of all mental clarity. Mm. Um, so you're just not you're just like not able to think as as well and just feel very fuzzy. Um, and that's that's like a 
big deal when you're trying to make important decisions that don't just affect you, but affect your employees and the future of your company and the financial status of your company. So even that really gave me pause, like, okay, this is a big life choice to be making. And how much does my, my, my health and my just where, what I'm capable of physically right now affect that? And how much does that need to weigh in on what I choose to do and how much of my time I can spend doing this? And, you know, as, as I think anyone who has a small business or any business understands, like it takes all of you most of the time. And if all of me is only, you know, only at like 25% one day, what does that mean? Um, so there's a lot of things to be weighed, I think, as it, when it comes to life choices, especially mm. when you're dealing with, you know, things, illnesses that feature things like chronic fatigue or, yeah, pain, just like low energy levels, stuff like that. It's it's hard to know you're making the right choices. And sometimes there's no way to know if you are <laughs> until you're in it. And then you're like, oh, maybe I would do this differently next time. <laughs> <laughs> are there places that you look to for any answers or are there communities like support communities are there doctors are there places that you look to for support in your decisions um yeah there's there's a great online resource um called the mighty that talks a lot about um a lot about fibromyalgia but also about chronic illness in general um it's kind of a community uh sourced content website. So a lot of the people writing the articles are people who themselves have chronic illnesses and there's content on there that covers everything from, you know, kind of some of the things we've been talking about today, like sort of how to adjust your sex life with a chronic illness to, you know, yeah, what, what does it mean to be, to be a parent and to have, have a chronic illness or, you know, how to tell your employer that you have a like all of these different topics. Oh, that's and so great. Yeah. It's just super helpful to see people are having similar experiences and are finding successes with things and to be able to kind of learn from other people's experiences to be able to see like, oh, that didn't go so well for them. Like there's something I can learn from that or, oh, I wouldn't have imagined I could do that. Um, but seeing other people doing it is really inspiring and encouraging. Um, and also just sort of seeing that there's so many ways that even with a specific condition, uh, there's so many ways that it plays out differently that like my symptoms aren't exactly the same as this other person's symptoms and that that's okay. And it doesn't mean that I like that my pain is not as, you know, substantial as theirs or not as relevant to their, you know, to my life as theirs is to theirs, that it's just, there's no comparison because it's just silly to compare, Mm. um, that what you're experiencing is what you're experiencing. And that's like, we're saying kind of, that's what your normal is. And yeah, that there is kind of a, a relativity when it comes to, to pain. And people, I think often feel that even when I talk to people who are, you know, quote unquote healthy, um, you know, who often say like, they'll be complaining about whatever, having a headache or having a sore ankle or something. And they'll be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, I shouldn't be talking about this to you because you must just be in so much pain all the time. And um, to be able to say like, well, no, because when you have a headache, like if you're normally not in a place of being in pain, that's extreme pain for you. And just because 
it wouldn't be extreme pain for me doesn't mean that it makes your pain less, you know, relevant to your life. Um, so just, I think having, seeing a lot of different people's experiences, being able to read where, where other people are at, what people are trying, what's working, what's not. And there's also just a lot, it's a good place to find information about some of like the research that's coming out and, maybe, you know, different things people are trying that might be helping. And sometimes it's easier to hear that kind of um, advice from somebody who's in the thick of it and really understands like what it's like to constantly be getting advice about what works and what doesn't. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful for, for that kind of a community. And I'm not super like heavily involved in it. I don't like comment on everything, but it is just useful and, and encouraging to mm. be able to see like, oh, I'm not alone in this because really, I mean, that's, I think the thing that was so surprising slash comforting to me is to discover that so many people, especially, I mean, in America, millions of people have fibromyalgia. And it's something that most of the time when I tell people I have it, they're like, what's it called? Like, what is it? Um, but just to realize, oh, just because I'm not encountering a lot of people who have it doesn't mean it's not out there. Mm -hmm. And I think the more visibility that chronic illness in general and, and for me, fibromyalgia is getting, especially with kind of more, more well-known people coming out with it, like Lady Gaga and Morgan Freeman, <laughs> um, you know, saying like, oh, yeah, I struggle with this, too. And to be able to see like, oh, well, they're not just staying in the house all day and mm. like they're getting stuff done and maybe they have a little more help than I do. <laughs> um, just a little bit. Just to see that, you know, there's there's people from all different um, walks of life and all different ways of kind of processing their pain and dealing with their pain that are becoming more vocal about it is so helpful. Yeah. I watched the Lady Gaga, um, documentary and, and I guess I had a, I had a couple friends growing up in Wisconsin that, um, had fibromyalgia and they were the first ones that I heard about it from when I was in high school. And, um, and then I didn't hear about it for like, uh, what, 15 years? Like, yeah. I, I mean, I graduated from high school a long time ago and I didn't, I, I just stopped hearing about it. And, um, and then, yeah, I, then Lady Gaga, I saw her documentary and it was incredible, but very, very clearly like she was going through so much pain. And then for you to start talking about it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. That thing, like I've heard of this. This is a thing, um, but people aren't, really don't talk about it that often. So, um, visibility is very, very supportive for people because knowledge is power. And um, I think you know ableism and just kind of the cracking, cracking the the kind of shell of like what what health should be or what what humanity and existence should be in air quotes. Um, you know, the more that we can challenge that and have the, these kinds of conversations, the more that we can all find a space to be us and be seen who we are. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Stick around for part two of this out of line discussion to hear a social media Q and a with Danae Horst. This episode of Out of Line was produced by me, Caroline. All sound editing, engineering, and original music composition by Jaden Lee. And a big thank you to Cat Footwear for working with Out of Line this season. 
hit subscribe to get the next episode on your mobile device when it drops next week. And if you love what you heard, please whip out a review, will ya? 